Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. This is our first episode post Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. I'm sure that's going to come up a lot today, especially because uh, of our very special guest who may or may not have something to do with making that festival happen. But first, uh, I got to check in with my friend Matanato, who's in the middle of a very tense World Series and make sure my buddy's doing okay. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good. Uh, as as of this recording in this very second, we are up five nothing. So we're just going to date this episode as a eleven two, literally <laughs> six inning of the Astros game against the Phillies. Last night was not great. Tonight is better. So we are surviving. We are thriving. I'm excited. Remember when we were in Brooklyn and you had a screening that started in the ninth inning of the Mariners Astros game, and you got out of your screening ninety minutes later, and that fucking game was still going on. Well, wasn't it even I, I I saw two movies technically in the time the game had started. And by the time I got out, didn't I see a full game? Didn't we actually get to the bar for like the ninth inning? And we were yeah, able we got, to like we got a free game of baseball for all of our troubles. Yeah, 100 percent. We got a whole game of baseball. But yes, so that was that's a very nice thing. You know, we got to go to Brooklyn Horror. We got to live our rivalry. You, the Mariners fan, me, the Astros fan. And it just got to do a lot of fun things, right? It was a weekend of coming together and a weekend of tearing apart. And we survived. We did survive. <laughs> but you Barely. know why we survived? It's because we had such a wonderful host who I think you should introduce right now. That is correct. One one of the many wonderful hosts at the Brooklyn Horror Fest. I do want to say the entire team there. It's been, you know, I've known them all for a while and I want to give everyone their due. But this episode is for one single person. Uh, you know him as the programmer of Brooklyn Horror and also senior programmer of the North Bend Film Festival. It is Mr. Joseph Hernandez. Joe, welcome. Finally made this happen finally it's been a little bit yeah it's been too long well like it's been long enough where you were trying to do the siren at one point and then we had to obviously give the siren to somebody who asked for it for the was that north bend or real love for one of them but like you were so far back that like one of your movies was like one of the first ones you were trying to get to uh and finally real love that was real love because that was real love the the diving film that we did with perry breaking Um, surface yeah all of our, you know, all of our live podcast appearances have been um, in some way connected to Mr. Joe Hernandez, and we're very grateful for that. Well, I love working with you guys, and I, I, I love seeing how Certified Forgotten has grown over the years. I'm really proud of you guys. I'm really happy to call you friends. Okay, this is too sweet, and I love it so much, but you're not here to support us. We're here to support you. So we're going to go into, you're going to see how the how the sausage gets made now, Joe. We're going to talk about your beginnings as a horror fan. And I'm really excited to talk about your work as a programmer and the work that you do with film festivals. But take us back to the very, very beginning, little baby Joe. Where <laughs> does that horror bug first bite for you? Okay, so it was kind of a gradual thing. My earliest memories of horror are like going to my aunt's house and catching little peaks of like Nightmare on Elm Street, whatever that they were watching, and getting totally disturbed. I had nightmares for years where I would appear in a uh, junkyard and Freddy Krueger would emerge from out of the back of like some dilapidated truck and start chasing me around this junkyard. Um, that was a... a, a uh, a nightmare that I had repeatedly um, growing up. But anyway, that um, <laughs> kind of launched me into a kind of morbid curiosity with the genre because 
I kind of liked how it made me feel in a certain mm. way. Like, so that kind of like got me to now I'm watching like Ghostbusters one and two nonstop. Cause like when you're a kid, you're able to just like watch the same movies over and 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 over again. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I watched part two more than the first one. I think I, I think I have more of a connection to, to, the, to the second one. And then now this is grade school Joe and my elementary school had a, like a sick library right next door. So like every day after school, I go to the library and I scour the, the racks for like any Goosebumps book I could find that I hadn't read yet. I just voraciously consumed Goosebumps. And then came Scooby-Doo. My family like finally got cable and I was able to watch Cartoon Network. And this is around the time where like Scooby-Doo reruns were pretty popular on the channel. And not too long after I got exposed to our film of the day. I love that. I, I want to ask then, because there's been a few people, you know, we talked to our guests about the movies that sort of made them. Um, and I'm always curious with folks that, that end up resonating the hardest with like, kind of like horror comedy type stuff, right? Is that, is, did that connection, that early connection to Scooby-Doo make you predisposed towards horror comedies? Were you somebody that kind of gravitated to, towards those in like middle school and high school? Or, you know, because I, I think of you as somebody who's extremely well watched and very literate and like tends to maybe skew a little bit towards me with like kind of the slow burn stuff too, which feels like the antithesis of like the very gentle, very happy and kind of like optimistic Scooby-Doo origin that you're talking about here. I, you're absolutely right. Um, like I didn't become a cinephile until after I fell in love with acting in high school. Hmm. That's when I really got interested into the art form of acting. And I wanted to just find every great performance that exists that I hadn't you know, watched yet. And that kind of just led me into loving movies in general. But horror definitely was the genre that captured me first. Besides like comic book stuff, like that's always been a part of my life. Sorry, I want to chase that because I think that's kind of interesting. You know, talking about coming to it by acting, I think a lot of really great writers, I think of Angelica Bastian, who talks about how we're not good as an industry about talking about performance and physicality. Do you find, is that something that, that you still anchor in on when it comes to horror performances and the idea of like, what if, what's a good performance and a bad performance? You know, how people use their bodies, how people use their voices. I do read a lot of film criticism and I feel like that's something that's often overlooked. We just sort of say good performance, bad performance, but we're not great always about talking about sort of the minutia that goes into that. I am predisposed to kind of hone in on the acting as one of the first elements of a movie when I, when I watch anything. Um, and this definitely finds its way into my film programming as well. I don't think on a first watch that it's incredibly easy to tap into the kind of minutia that's going on. I think maybe on a couple of rewatches, you can really dig into it. And because like on my first watch, whenever I'm watching anything, I'm like, I'm just absorbing the story. I'm definitely not the type of viewer that I'm trying to predict what's happening. I like to just give myself over to what I'm watching and, and hopefully I lose myself in it. But the analyzing of the acting, it's kind of surface level in the beginning. And 
if something strikes me right away, I know there's a lot going on there and it'd be something I'd be excited to to dig deeper into. Well, I like the idea of like mentioning, you know, going back to your horror comedy, you know, kind of starting and saying like Scooby-Doo is one of the earliest things that really drew you in. And then to tie that to your programming where like, like the joke I always make with you guys at Brooklyn Horror, like you, Matt Barone, Justin Tim, is like the way you program Brooklyn Horror is like at times the anti-Donato Festival because <laughs> it is very much like the way you guys program. And again, it's not a bad thing. It is just 100%. You all have the same mindset and the way you program is more of the slow burns. You, you have much more appreciation for the, uh, those kind of films. And so I do want to go back to the horror comedy aspect. It's a monocle festival. He's not, you can't see him. Monocle's nodding his head because like that's his jam. But I want to go back to the horror. Com- I knew I was going to love it. I knew I was going to love Brooklyn horror. And then I watched all those movies and I was like, ah, fuck yeah. But I want to go back to the horror comedy aspect. Cause like, does that still permeate through like what you go to watch maybe like for comfort or something like that? Or like, when did it kind of evolve into the more, you know, the love of the slow burn or is the comedy still that thing that is, you know, still still there in a way, I guess to say. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So like first I will say that now that um, we've been able to expand our programming at Brooklyn Horror, um, I think we're more at liberty to kind of, with a lot of our selections, take our personal tastes out of it and just like program stuff that we know there's a great interest for and that people want to see. It might not be specifically for us, but you know, this festival isn't something we're doing just for us. It's for the filmmakers and it's for our audience members. So um, I do feel like if there was a lack of lighthearted fare, that we're going to be able to satisfy that going forward. But going back to myself, I think it all boils down to the idea of gateway horror. I think in the beginning, as a, as a child, I uh, found it easier to consume horror that um, wasn't as uh, uh, dreary and, uh, you know, hardcore. I mean, I just, it, it's funny because like now I think I'm kind of uh, shaky with horror comedy where like a lot of horror comedies don't work. I don't like Evil Dead 2. I, I prefer Evil Dead 1 or, or the remake. Um, but uh, yeah, that's funny. I never really thought of that. But yeah, and, and the, at the start of my horror journey, I was like, I was gravitating towards um, horror comedy. And yeah, that's that's fascinating. And again, just for the record, like I, you do do a good job programming. Like that was me just joking and saying the sense that like I love le- leaving one of those Brooklyn horror movies. And then like it's you're collecting ballots or like Barone is. And I'm like, yeah, I know program that one. I just like walk by. <laughs> but like that's the thing, though, you do take risks on those movies. And like this year alone, I'm seeing films that didn't play other festivals. You know, I'm seeing these films that are like getting their world premieres at Brooklyn Horror when like you know, not to name other festivals, but a few that just happened or just playing the same things I've seen a bunch of times. So like, that is the difference. And like, that is why I keep singing the praises of like, I'm coming back to Brooklyn. I am, I hope more people do and like stuff like that. <laughs> well, 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 look, Matt, I don't need a yes man. All right. That's not what I need. You can challenge me. I think, um, you know, getting outside perspectives on our programming is really important for us um, to continue to, expand and and kind of satisfy every corner of of the genre so um thinking back i think there has been at least an an imbalance of you know 
um, going on there. So, yeah. We've, we've talked a little bit about the programming at Brooklyn Horror, but I'm kind of curious. I, I feel like if you were to choose one thing, one part of the industry that people just don't know that much about, a job that seems totally a total mystery for a lot of folks, that would be programmers. Uh, you know, I think the most you could be like is like, I have good taste in movies. And then one day somebody paid me to make that like a thing. Right. I think that's how, as far as a lot of folks go. So I want to talk a little bit about your career and kind of how you found yourself gravitating towards that. And what were sort of the stops along the way that made a career in programming possible? So soon after I became that like cinephile that we're talking about, um, I discovered film festivals. Naturally, I, I was looking around for what was going on, you know, in, in my hood. And that was like Tribeca Film Festival. That was New York Film Festival. So I started attending these and I fell in love to the point where I was like, wow, maybe I should try to work for one of these festivals. So I, I started doing my research and I was seeing what, you know, what were my options? And I saw there was a Brooklyn Horror Film Festival that was just created they hadn't had their first edition yet or anything. It's brand new. I, I sent an email that evening. I was on the phone with Justin Timms and I was hired on the spot with the caveat that I couldn't start as a programmer because I was unknown. They didn't know, they didn't know who I was. I had to prove myself. So I started as a screener. And then during the actual festival, I was given the opportunity to manage venues, to moderate Q&As, to do everything and everything in, in the machine to kind of prove myself and, and show that, that I wanted to be there. And, and then during the off season, um, I was bumped up to programmer. So what would you describe as sort of like the core essential skills? Because you just mentioned like a lot, like venues, Q&A, like screeners, wildly different skill sets that some people will spend their entire career just focusing in on, on elements of that, right? So what is the skill set that makes you a good programmer? And you have to take the compliment. You are a good programmer. <laughs> but like what if somebody's if somebody's listening to this and is like, I that's something that I'm interested in doing and I'm, you know, I want to find that local film festival near me and I want to help them succeed, what skills should they have? All right. So with the film festivals that I primarily work with, we're very small teams. So while yes, I am um, primarily a film programmer, I have to help out with every other department. It's an all hands on deck kind of thing. It's the only way that we're able to get all the work done to get ready you know, and prepare for, for, for the next edition. So I think right off the jump, you just have to be willing to do stuff you've never done before, willing to help out with stuff that you might not enjoy because it's all for the greater good of getting to put on this festival and have it be successful. There are many months throughout the year where I just get to focus on film programming and I don't have to worry about anything else. But I would say like the last two months leading up to the festival, that's when you kind of have to put a hat on top of a hat on top of a hat on top of a hat and, and just get to work. I remember that first, you know, festival too, because I was lucky enough to serve on the jury uh, that first year. And, you know, Justin came to me and like, was, it was like, hey, like, do you want to be on this jury? We're starting this film festival. 
And usually like the jury member is like the cushy job, right? You just get to like watch the movies and vote on it. But like, you know, there Justin was like you're saying, Joe, like how how much it is that like everyone kind of like takes a village, everybody who wants to help out, help out. And it was very much like, I know you're on the jury, but like, do you want to like do some Q&As and do you want to like help out with these venue things? And I was like, hell yeah, like that's that's the thing. Like, it's such a communal vibe that you guys have going on, uh, guys and girls. Like, it's it's such a good tight knit. You know, you talk about the the family festivals and the festivals you want to go to and you just feel like you're a part of. Um, I, I think like, you know, Brooklyn is one of that in the sense that. I, I went back after four years or something like that. And did I know all you guys already prior? Yeah, I helped out for a few years and was lucky enough to work with you guys. But like the four years off where I was in L.A. and, you know, I couldn't get out to you like it didn't matter. Like I came back this year and it was just full on like it's back like it's on like, holy shit. Like it just felt so good. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about. Um, programming for the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival in particular, because, you know, I, I, I wrote my master's thesis on genre film festivals. So, you know, <laughs> there's that. But I think <laughs> that I've always been fascinated by the way, you know, one of the, the things that people don't realize about film festivals is they, for a lot of these films, they're the only theatrical release some of these movies are ever going to get. If they don't play it, like, and not just horror film festivals, but regional film festivals, right? Like I had a, a professor in college who always said the best film festival in the world is the Cleveland international film festival because they program really good stuff from all over you know it's it's basically it brings new york and la to um, to cleveland but having said all of that i feel like new york is still kind of underserved when it comes to film festivals and genre festivals in particular for a city of that size it's tribeca and it's at this point tribeca and y'all and i don't even know if the new york city horror film festival is even a thing anymore it still is oh thank god but like what is it you know what are some of like the challenges of doing this in new york city in the, the biggest city in the world the greatest city in the world etc cetera, etc cetera. does that open doors for you guys if you compared to if you're doing it somewhere else or does it make it harder because you know you're standing in the shadows of other film festivals bigger film festivals like you know lincoln centers new york film festival and other stuff well i think that we're operating in a niche of the festival world um, where we're kind of able to own our space um, with the films we show, but also the timing of our festival being in October. Um, we do overlap with New York Film Festival, but it's counter-programming for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being in New York um, helps us greatly, and we just have a, a way larger audience to tap into. The potential to grow our audience is always there. Um, because there's so many fucking people in, yeah. in the in the area. But also, um, I think people would be more willing to travel to New York to go to a, a film festival and just like double it as vacation and, and film festival time. I think you're at a disadvantage if you're in a uh, smaller market um, area and trying to do a festival on the scale of what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, like it, you're in Brooklyn, too. It's it's prime positioning, you know, like because I used to live around the area and I could go. I, I did use it as like a vacation festival as well. But like you're in the heart of like Williamsburg area. You have so much going on around you. Like it is such a good location. And, you know, to speak to the other festivals, like you're saying, like Monogal is actually right. Like the, the genre scene in New York is actually so weird when it comes to festivals because the Tribeca Midnighters are, you know, like 
you get such limited selection. Like you just get a few and it's run through the Tribeca lens. So like they do a good job. Don't get me wrong, but like the opportunities are so dire. And if also talking like fest, like what the fest was something that went on and like that didn't survive. Um, New York horror film festival is still ongoing, I believe. So like that is a much smaller festival to say where, you know, I think, they're really dedicated to the indie indies and like, it's great to have those festivals. So like they're dedicated to the, the films you're really never going to see anywhere else, but there have been other fil- like festivals that have tr- come and gone literally in like two years when you guys are, you know, approaching, <laughs> approaching double digits rather quickly, which is like a great thing to say. Yeah. There was um also uh, scary movies. Um, it was a series that film society of Lincoln center used to put on, but a screening series. Mm-hmm. And there's no no disrespect there, but like that's there's a difference between a screening series and a and a film festival. Uh, but you you leaned into my next question for you, Joe, which was going to be, what does having access to repertory screenings in cinema do for you as a festival too? Because I think of Brooklyn, you know, one of the great things about Brooklyn Horror Film Festival that I think a lot of festivals get wrong is the fact that you're really dedicated to not having it be just you know a week out of the year. You guys are wherever and whenever possible hosting repertory screenings, hosting screenings of the movies that you showed that are going out. Like you have year round programming. So what does it take to make that happen? And what does that do for you as a festival compared to just like, we're here for a week and then we're gone for 360 days. Yeah. um, The year round screenings were a big part of our kind of mission um, of pre pandemic. We haven't gotten back to it. I think that's something that um, we really want to relaunch in 2023 uh, because it's very important to keep that momentum going post-fest to bridge you to the next edition. It's tough when everyone has a great time and then it's a whole year mm-hmm. where people can get interested in other things, can have uh major life changes where the festival no longer remains a priority in their lives. But if you, if you hold a presence, a constant presence um, in their life, it's a lot harder to let go. Festivals are like the sleepover camp uh, kind of deal to me where it's like, you know, we all go once a year, we meet at Brooklyn horror and we get our year and our week and a half of just, we're there, we're doing it again. But it's also summer camp in the way that, just like you said, Joe, like sometimes things change and people don't return and things like that. But having that constant programming when I lived in Brooklyn was so much fun to go to, to just like, you know, we could see movies early. And again, to say like it could be something that goes straight to VOD that you just have the partnerships with like IFC Midnight and other people that you could just be like, well, why don't we just like show this at this art gallery on a screen with like free beers and popcorn like that? That is Again, community. You're in New York City. Like it's such it's such a crucial, great thing to have there. Yeah, and that's what we're we're. Um, I think this edition in particular has really made it clear to me that that's what we're doing here. We're we're building a horror community, and you know, not yes, festivals are also a business. Like that is very true. If we don't treat it that way, we we could not continue to exist we need to fund our events somehow mm-hmm. um where was i going with this ah uh, <laughs> thank you dark sky for sponsoring right. the certified forgotten segment at the 2023 <laughs> brooklyn horror film festival is that where you're going with that 
Ah, <laughs> uh, exactly. No. So like, I don't want to get into like, to make this seem like customer retention or anything like that, but it, 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 it really warms my heart when I see the same faces return to the festival year after year. And we're building friendships. We're building bonds. We're now we're going out of our way to spend time with each other outside of the festival. Right. I love when filmmakers meet at the festival mm-hmm. and become collaborators and, and return and, you know, submit something that they worked on together. I mean, like this is all part of what, it, the film festival can offer. It's a celebration of the genre. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about, um, about the repertory screenings. I love that we've expanded our program to the point where now we can have full sidebars of retro, you know, um, options because we're an annual event. It's, I want it to also be a celebration of not the new, but of, of, of the full history of the genre. Like every year we're, 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 we're gathering to, to honor and celebrate horror. And, and that community aspect is so, so important because it's like, you're, you're gathering with it, with family. And I know you want to be very careful not to talk about audience retention. I'm a career marketer, so I have no such misgivings about it. You know, I, I think that is actually something that I appreciate the most about Brooklyn horror is that you guys are savvy at this. It does nobody any good. If you have a really kick-ass horror festival that happens once and then it goes away forever. And we've all seen incredible horror festivals, incredible film festivals that like happened once and then they couldn't sustain themselves. So I love the line that y'all are walking. I love that you're thinking of it as a family too, but I love the fact that you are doing this in a way that is sustainable. That means that this is going to happen year after year which means that, you know, in a couple of years, I don't have like a, a t-shirt or a hat or something. People are like, oh, whatever happened to that? But like, oh, it went out of business. They were super good at programming, super bad at business decisions. You know, I don't have to have that conversation with folks. I can be like, it's happening again this year in October. You should go to Brooklyn. It's a lot of fun. I appreciate that. <laughs> that feels like enough praise for the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. I'm over it. Donato's over it. But you know what? We're not over. Fucking Scooby-Doo. So when we come back, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Joe's conversation and delve into the film that turned him into a horror fan. We'll be back in just a second. Well, hi, everyone. It is the month of November, which means we are feeling grateful. And in particular, we are feeling grateful for the opportunity to participate in last month's Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, our very first in-person, I'd say recording, but we didn't record anything. I would say like live live episode experience extravaganza. That was really cool. That was hi, really Rogers. cool. Sorry. I'm showing Monogle Rogers because he's sitting like a derp, just looking at me upside down. Anyway, yes, he's, Brooklyn He's Harvard. always sitting. He's always derping out. Um, no, I very much, it was great to go back to Brooklyn, especially. It was like a homecoming for me, you know, eight years living in Greenpoint and getting to go back to Williamsburg right down the street and be at the festival that I think I was, you know, I was on the jury year one and I got to stay and hang out with those mm-hmm. uh, creators and everyone there. So it was very, it was emotional in a way, you know, I, I got to go home. Yeah. I got to have some fun and especially first festival outside of Overlook that like 
you know, so I guess technically second in-person festival I've been to since lockdown and, you know, a lot of, a lot of anxiety still around what's happening in the world. But at the same time, it was really cool just to be somewhere I wanted to be and with people I wanted to be with and, you know, just have fun, man, just having fun. We made some really good new friends, uh, one of whom will be appearing on our very next episode, the next episode of Certified Forgotten. But we would be remiss if we did not thank the people that helped make our Jack Be Nimble uh, live um, live episode slash screening happen. We want to say thank you to Dark Sky Films, who sponsored the event, and the Brooklyn Horror Film organizers, uh, who were gracious enough to extend the invitation. But most importantly, we want to thank our guests, Karen Coleman, founder of The Future of Film is Female, and Ron Megliazzi, the film curator at Museum of Modern Art. Those are people that I looked up to when I lived in New York City, and they were on our show. And uh, that's cool. That's just going to be the coolest thing that happened to me for a very long time. So it's thank cool. you for coming on. Thank you for supporting us. We're so we, – we, like, all I can say is you and I came out of that more fired up about Certified Forgotten than we've been in a long time. And that's not because we're not fired up about Certified Forgotten. Yeah, it's fired up because like there's still future things and there's still mm-hmm. all of these goals and milestones you want to hit. And live show is one of many. It wasn't the only yeah. one. So listen, that's, that's the first. And from there, we're just going to keep pushing because that's what we do. Because why would we take a break when we can just keep working ourselves towards goals that we want to achieve no matter what, how exhausted we are? <laughs> Yep, podcast is only going to end when one of us dies, and your bet is to which one of us will die first. <laughs> now placing bets. Over under is me, probably, but only because of the age difference. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. Thanks, everybody. Hey, welcome back. This week on the show, we have a very, very important and sentimental movie for Joe and a movie that I, I Donato, you just would not stop talking about on Twitter. Like I get the certified forgotten notifications and my phone was blowing up as soon as you started tweeting about this movie. So I'm very, very excited to see the comments we get on this one. But introductions are in order, please, sir. I'm going to let you do this because this is definitely a Donato movie. It was very funny because I did tweet it out and like, it wasn't just me. It was just a bunch of people who were replying to the tweet, like in harmony and BJ immediately, uh, Sam Britt Sandler wrote a piece for Scooby-Doo and the uh, ghoul school, and, like all that stuff. So there is a history of Scooby-Doo with us already, but, uh, today is a very special movie because it is Scooby-Doo, uh, uh, Scooby-Doo on zombie Island. I always wanted to say at zombie Island, but no, it's Scooby-Doo on zombie Island. And it is the first time the entire gang gets together to solve a mystery that it actually turns out to be a supernatural occurrence um, because that is what this movie is about in a way, you know, Daphne is the television host and Daphne wants to go find the real stuff, but it's enough of the monsters who are just people in masks and we want to go find some real and spooky. So they go to new Orleans to do that. And what happens is exactly that they meet some people who take them to a real haunted house and immediately Fred and Velma are kind of just, Oh, well, where did where is the actual bad guy going to come in? You know, where is the camera with a projector telling us where the ghost is and all that stuff? And as the night, as the knights themselves go out of control, we get werecats, we get actual zombies, we get hot peppers, and we just get Scooby and Shaggy doing what they do best. So like, 
it is just such a fun little turn for the entire Scooby-Doo kind of franchise at that point where, oh, no, we're going to do actual spooky stuff. We're actually going to get a little dark and do that. So that is Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island in a nutshell that we will get way more into. I love it. So, Joe, first question for you, then, talking about this film. We have we are lucky enough to know several people that I would describe as Scooby-Doo scholars. I'm thinking of Trace Thurman, of course, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of that franchise. God bless him. And BJ and Harmony, I think, know those movies inside and out as well. Are you a completionist? Have you seen every version of Scooby-Doo that exists, live action or animated? I have not, no. Oh, okay. No, uh, I am not on their level. Scooby-Doo is something I have a really strong nostalgia for. And and I really enjoyed um, kind of doing a little deep dive into it um, before today. Uh, but no, I'm not an aficionado. I will not claim a- a- anything of the sort. Well, today you're going to be our scholar. And so we discussed the origin of this film in particular. But I want to ask you kind of starting talking about this movie. One of the fun things about the Scooby-Doo show movie, you know, et cetera, is that they kind of they, they do a really good job of reinventing themselves for each generation. They're not really fixed in time, right? Like each generation gets a version of Scooby-Doo that resonates, you know, taps into I'm going to sound like a million years old, taps into youth culture and finds ways to make those stories connect with younger generations, too. So, you know, as you've been digging into Scooby-Doo a little bit what are your what are your takes on, on the i guess the scooby-doo template right like the scooby-doo model well I, I mean i think we have to talk about like how scooby-doo as a franchise is one of the most enduring ones in the horror genre in general like premiering in 1969 and it's never gone away i mean how many how many franchises can we can we say that for I mean, we can say, you know, in a way the Munsters did it, <laughs> but not with any longevity uh, that Scooby-Doo has to this point. So, like, that is correct. Like, you look at all big the ass, slasher. I'm sorry, I was going to say big ass gap in the middle there for the Munsters. As well. Yeah, exa- exactly. So that that was a joke, obviously. I know, no, I know. I mean, I'm like, I love it. That is the correct thing to say. Like, and I, you know, I'm one to always argue that stuff like Child's Play and like all these slasher franchises and like the ones that are longest and the ones that are enduring the farthest and who does it best. But I mean, to me, I kind of do agree that like Scooby-Doo has done the best because they've had so many directed uh, video kind of releases and different adaptations that have evolved. They don't have to stay the same slapstick, but they always have the Scooby-Doo template, I guess, down to a T, no matter how they're doing it. Yeah, and I mean, Zombie Island saved the franchise. I mean, it could have very easily just fallen to the wayside if it didn't reinvent itself in the way that they did. This is 29 years after the premiere of the series when, when Zombie Island comes along, um, almost three full decades, and... They lucked out with um, with Cartoon Network um, springing to life in the early 90s and getting this whole new generation of kids interested in reruns of the original Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Where they didn't have to create like a new series. They were just showing reruns and just getting new kids interested. And then 
with Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, I mean, you really see the influence of what was happening in the horror genre at large. There's a huge uh, um, inspiration from, from Scream. It's very, it's spoofing itself. It's it's spoofing its tropes. It's very, you know, a self-referential. This whole idea of one of the characters, Daphne, saying like, I'm tired of it always being a man in a mask. It's boring. Like, you know, we get romantic subplots in this that didn't really exist in, in, in the original series. You could say Daphne is like a Gail Weathers type. Like, she, you know, uh, Thelma is doing like her best like race dance. She like runs a mystery bookshop now. You know, it's total Ghostbusters 2 callback. Um, it's very indebted to... Uh, the original series was was very much indebted to the classic uh, Universal monsters, and 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 that's just kind of in, in, endured all the way through. But yeah, you really see, you really see Zombie Island kind of geniusly take its its formula, spin it on its head, because now you you have you have people who watched it as a kid. And you now they're adults, and that the same thing isn't really going to work anymore. Scooby Doo on Zombie Island is super dark, super dark. It's it's served on a on a very uh, palatable, uh, uh, entertaining plate, but when you think back on some of the stuff that they're telling you is going on, I mean, people herded into into a swamp and being massacred by crocodiles like i mean crocodiles are alligators i always get the two you know it's i think they're gators down there but yeah <laughs> what, yeah what, what what are you gonna do uh yeah there's a lot of dark shit going on in, in Sco- scooby-doo on, on zombie island and, and i don't know since like we we have the, the four films from that era, we have Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island, Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, Scooby-Doo and Alien Invaders, Scooby-Doo uh, and Cyber Chase. But I feel like Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island might be the purest and darkest of, of, of those all for sure. But like since then, I mean, I, I can't, like I said, I, I haven't dove in to a lot of the modern stuff. But I think there's a reason why Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island still is king. Whenever the topic comes up for discussion. Yeah, I wasn't. So my backstory with this is like I'd, I'd seen the reruns the same as you, Joe. Like I, I've seen the reruns over and over, like the original Scooby-Doo cartoon and, and the early stuff was easy for me to find. And it was easy for me to watch because along the same trajectory that you were on, I was a fearful little kid who didn't want horror in his life. But like the talking dog and the stoner eating food like that was funny, like like that kind of stuff could get me through. Um, but as a 33 year old, you know, like living my best adolescent life I never did as a spooky kid, like watching exactly what you said, watching uh, Zombie Island and realizing how dark it did get. And uh, like, I didn't even put the scream thing, you know, together yet um, because I had just previously watched it. But that is 100 percent what's happening. Like those jokes, the meta jokes aren't just commenting on Scooby Doo. Like there was an influence of horror at the time and what's happening and like the way that horror is evolving itself. And that is what good franchises do. They evolve with horror. They evolve with contemporary themes. They evolve with all that stuff. And it could have just come back as another campy, stupid kid show. And I don't want to say stupid in the way that it is bad, obviously, but like 
it, it is rinse and repeat. It's like, what's the, it's a monster of the day show. Who's under the mask. What are you doing? So like you come out, you just kick the door in that the scene with the settlers getting hurt in the swamp by, you know, our, our villain at the time before he becomes the ghost. Um, so like, like there's literally like, territorial takeover stuff and like historical trauma there and you see these innocent people die who are just pushed into a swamp just for being settlers and the curse that the remaining people are are latent with even though they're just protecting their people at a time like there's so much to this that isn't just about mr welker putting a mask on because he wants to get some money and like that like that is there is so much more to zombie island that i wasn't expecting again because i I had not dove into these, um, you know, direct DVD movies yet. So it, it is me right now rediscovering them. And, and, you know, maybe I've seen a few of recent ones, you know, here and there. But it is funny to say I immediately put on because now I have Boomerang for seven days, this free trial, because I, I did that to watch uh, Zombie Island. And immediately I'm scrolling through. I'm like, well, of course, I'm going to watch Scooby-Doo and The Undertaker team up in the Wacky Races episode, like or like movie. Like immediately I watched that one, Curse the Speed Demon. And it is so much lighter. Like, like there's nothing there in, in a WWE Scooby-Doo product that is anywhere close to Zombie Island. And I have to assume that most of the other ones since then, you know, Cyber Chase and stuff like that, when they go digital, uh, it just nothing looks like Zombie Island. So I, I am obviously going to keep going myself. I've been yelled at by my roommate Amelia to watch The Witch's Ghost because Hex Girls and stuff like that. So we will see them all recently, but... I didn't expect to watch something that was so much more mature than what I'm usually like used to where Scooby-Doo is with the Harlem Harlem Globetrotters and they're just spinning balls around ghosts who are actually people. (laughs) I like that you brought up uh, Hex Girls because the soundtrack for Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island is also something that gets brought up every time because it's got like one of like the sickest fucking tracks with it's terror time again um it just it's a it's a banger it should go on every halloween playlist and then you have like third eye blind who this is like during like peak third eye blind like when they're like really really popular and they're doing like their version of the the scooby-doo theme song which is like a huge get for the time from my research i saw there was like a 50 million dollar marketing campaign for this film like they really, really were 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 um, putting all their marbles into it. I I I have to believe Scooby Doo was probably their most popular uh, IP, you know, at Cartoon Network at that time. And they, I mean, we we got lucky and came out with something, you know, generational and amazing. I want to ask both of you kind of a question about. You've talked a lot about the screamification of Scooby-Doo and kind of or this and the idea of how it how something engages with its own history and honors it. I think that's a conversation we have a lot right now about a lot of different things because we're deep in nostalgia culture. Uh, You know, every franchise, every movie, every piece of entertainment you ever loved is going to eventually be a Super Bowl commercial or a prequel series or, or whatever else it is. So what. Maybe, well, let's put it like this. What do you think filmmakers can learn from Scooby-Doo in how to engage with an audience and with a fandom while still carving out something new? Because this does both of those things. I think you're serving different audiences. I think um, for our peer group, 
we want dark Scooby-Doo. You know, like we 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 love the characteristics um, of the characters. We 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 know who Shaggy is. We know who Scooby is. We that can stay. Now, if we're talking about like our our young ones who were just like us, just getting into horror, they might not be ready for that yet. So I think it's difficult. I think I think Scooby Doo is a large enough brand where you can you can make films for different audiences. Um, and I, I think that's kind of what needs to happen to kind of satisfy everyone. Yeah, and like it's really interesting to me that they in saying catering to multiple audiences, you know, the first Scooby-Doo WrestleMania mystery is 2014. So that is very much a more contemporary Scooby-Doo movie. And it's hitting the crowd that is more, I guess to say younger in a way, but also if you're doing WWE, it's a little older at the same time. So like you're pulling in such an interesting audience with that. And then literally a few years later is when you do, you know, a rock and roll mystery with kiss. And to me, like, that like kiss comes after um, John Cena to say in this chronology, but it's that's so interesting to me because like, you know, kiss is for an older crowd at this point. Like you're not getting kids to watch a Scooby-Doo kiss crossover. You're getting the old school fans, but you first catered to like the new school fans with, you know, uh, WWE and like a more kid friendly version of John Cena and, and, and like the undertaker, you know, to say that, the one I watched again, like Curse the Speed Demon. It has all these great wrestlers like Sheamus and like con- contemporary wrestlers of today, but kidified. Um, just the way that they're able to balance that kind of stuff and do these crossovers that are pulling from so many different pop culture sectors, but they're all still making it Scooby Dooified. And you're having to please the adults who are coming into it as fans from yesteryear who maybe were wrestling fans at the same time, going like, Yeah, I want to see Taker, like, you know taker's last run with scooby-doo like this is now so long after but it all comes down to the evolution and it comes down to knowing your product and saying no matter what we take no matter how we cross over no matter what we do it's still gonna be what you love because throughout the entirety of this insane racing spectacle that is run by stephanie mcmahon it's still scoob and shaggy driving a food truck and like making big sandwiches and doing like doing what they do best um, so like the evolution is just coming down to understanding where you are in a cultural moment and figuring out how to best take everything that you know that works and still make it work for you. It's not about taking what works and just slapping it on with a fresh coat of paint. It's taking what works and putting it in your franchise into a way that evolves. And if we're going to use scream, like literally scream Four does that one of the best, I think, because jumping from three to four, like three being scream, we're still talking about here being the comedy route to say and it's just so latent with comedy like it doesn't work for me in the same way where four is a perfect evolution to me because you've taken a moment in horror history where the reboot uh, remake trend is so prevalent and and then you turn that into a brilliant screen script like I I just think like being able to do those things and acknowledging that we're still going to make our movie the way we want to but we're still going to make it about what the current trends in horror that's where it is. And to say that like Scream and Scooby-Doo do it equally well, I don't know what that sentence means out loud, but it, I, I think it does. <laughs> and and I want to sk- uh, skate back a little bit because I do think that Zombie Island kind of 
did it perfectly where I think it works for like an all ages, um, you know, audience. But I realized that, you know, it'd be silly if I'm like, just like, yeah, just like do that again every, every time because it's so easy. But like a few years ago, there was a, a, a sequel that was released to very little fanfare. I think it was very disappointing to a lot of lovers of the original. I haven't, I haven't even watched it yet. Um, but that just proves that like, it's not, you know, so easy to just like replicate that formula. No, it's not easy. And it's also battling the stigma of direct video. Uh, that's another thing that we talk about often on this channel, on this, this show, because, you know, the Scooby-Doo is always seen as the television show and always seen as in some kind of entity. So Warner Brothers, again, or, you know, whoever's coming together to distro this uh, on Zombie Island, as you said, Joe, it was like 50 million behind the marketing push. So they knew they had a challenge in saying, we're going to bring Scooby-Doo to a, to a different medium. And it's not to say that it was even the first movie he's ever done, but it was a resurgence. It was coming back. This This had to be a big fanfare. Um, and doing it the, the way that they did it was hard to get people to, you know, maybe tune in, I would say. And the fact that they put that much money into it to make sure it was a success, I think that is also something that that helped, you know, like that was the thing that really got them off the ground um, because it's not easy. So, like you're battling a bunch of stigmas there and especially an animated kids feature, you know, like that, that enough is like for the audience who doesn't have children, for the audience who isn't just going to buy this so they can put it on for their kids during a babysitter, how are you going to get them to watch this? And well, you have to do it right. And again, I, I do believe that Scooby-Doo's on the Island does it right in the sense that it hits all of all angles. It hits the, the demographics. It does what it has to. And I, it, again, like I, I, I keep talking about it more and it's funny because like I did just watch it. So like my thoughts on it are still processing in a way, but the more I'm talking about it, it's like, no, the more that this is really good at what it does, like straight up, like it's serving the horror fans. It's serving the, the children who just need a gateway, but also the children who don't want to be too scared. But at the same time, we're talking about these hugely like national traumas that are part of the storytelling. Um, and, and it just goes kitchen sink. And, you know, it, it and it didn't even change things forever. Like there still are plenty of Scooby-Doo properties after this that don't deal with the supernatural it does go back to formula it is about just someone in a mask and you know when when they take the mask off and it's triple fucking h you're like okay cool like i'm in on this but they do then continue the supernatural when they want to so you've like opened another door where people now don't know what they're gonna get like you can you've you've played this trick where well guess what this time it was supernatural and this time it actually was real so now every time you go into something you're like i don't know which one i'm gonna get We've talked a couple of times about this being really good gateway horror. And Joe, this was clearly like your gateway of gateway horror, you know, the thing that, that did it for you. So what, I mean, we kind of dug into a little bit about what makes a good gateway horror, but like, what, what is the, like, what's use this as a lens of helping a viewer understand, maybe you have kids and maybe you're trying to figure out like, what's the appropriate age um, that you can start introducing them to some of the spooky stuff. What makes for really great? gateway horror what are the things that the parents or uncles or aunts or you know grandparents or whoever should be looking for and why is scooby-doo such a really good example of that i think scooby-doo really succeeds at being gateway horror because it doesn't talk down to its audience 
there is not a patronizing bone, you know, in its in, in its body. It, you just feel like Fred and Daphne and Velma and Shaggy and Scooby. They're just they're your friends, and you're solving this who done it kind of mystery together. And by keeping it kind of tame and not going too too hardcore with it, you're kind of able to to just take these kids along for 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 a ride give them a little a little spook and then show them that every, everything is okay at the end and i think that's a safe way to to experience horror in small doses in the beginning because it's the stuff we're exposed to now like i mean what the fuck like i mean i, I you know uh Gotta take my my nephew, my three year old nephew, to go see Terrifier too. Just have a wonderful weekend <laughs> at the local AMC, Julian. Sorry about that. Exactly. I think um, if we want to let let those seed, no, plant those seeds, and then let them grow on their own, you kind of have to start at a certain level, and 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 then just let that plant grow. Because that's what happened with me. I mean, no one in my in my family was a big horror person or anything. Like I kind of discovered it on my own, and um, and I I started with stuff that I was able to handle, and worked my way up to now. Uh, I love I love the most depressing and horrible things imaginable. The way you describe it, Joe, it almost, I know this sounds flippant, but I don't think it is. It almost, it sounds like you're saying that it's microdosing, that like you're microdosing horror at a young age and like getting comfortable with the experience and kind of a safe space, but having like a little bit of a good trip and other stuff. Like, I don't think I'd ever quite thought of gateway horror as like microdosing horror, but that's kind of what it is. Horror is a drug. I mean, there's a reason why like, I could still get excited to watch like a, a shitty horror movie in, in a way that I could never get myself pumped up to watch just like a shitty drama because it has that extra something that I'm excited for that I might only get a little bit of it, but that is enough to get me to sign up. Well, and talking about the gateway aspect of it all in the sense of and microdosing too, like I think there are levels of gateway horror in the sense that animation is always the easiest to first get into because animation, there's no, what's, I don't mean reality in the sense that like, I believe horror is real, but you know, if you're watching live action, there is a level of like, oh, I'm seeing something that's actually happening where animation is the easiest entry point for horror because it is a cartoon. It, it is completely illustrated or digitized, whatever it is. And it is the easiest for a child to look at and say, okay, this is not actually happening. We're, we're good here. And I think that's why it is such a important first step, I guess to say, um, because it, 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 you're getting your first exposure to it and you're getting your first exposure to ghosts and goblins and whatever, whoever they're f- facing. Um, but then to me, like, I think there is a graduation in, in the levels of gateway horror, because like I would argue something like the uh, scary stories to tell in the dark adaptation is fantastic gateway horror because to speak to Joe's first point, good gateway horror doesn't soften its blow for the audience. Because like to me, horror should be 
introduced in levels to say like this is a genre that will scare you this is a genre that is filled with terrifying things but we're going to tell it to you in a way that maybe isn't the bleakest iteration yet like we're not going to hit you with hereditary as a kid like that like we're going to save that for later but we're going to give you something like scary stories to tell in the dark that has gnarly creature effects that is done with nothing but passion and love has like the best creature actors in it because the people behind the movie love horror so much but it still is that teenage tale so it's like you start with scooby-doo but then you go to something like scary stories to tell in the dark that doesn't treat its audience like they're lesser that doesn't treat its audience like we're gonna coddle you and just kind of like no no no. horror is an unsafe genre in a way and like whether you know you're ready for it or not like i think it is important to get to that point where you know scooby-doo is something that is so quintessentially entry-level introductory in a great way because like you do need that starting point to get even to like scary stories to tell in the dark like you're not going to show that to a five-year-old like you're going to show them the cartoons and the easy colorful things that are easy to digest for them but still give them that first dose so i i think the micro dosing is incredibly right like you're just subliminally getting someone into into horror uh in the easiest way possible because still at the end of the day the mask comes off in most iterations of scooby-doo and it, the the veil is revealed so the horror that you get is in short enough bursts but it's still there and it's still great so it's like it's that perfect amalgamation of i'm going to treat you correctly but i'm also going to soften the end so you're able to like your exit point of this movie television show whatever it is is still light enough where you are not traumatized <laughs> It's like your dad beating you in chess, but only only by a little bit, right? Right, right, exactly. Like you, you've learned something and you just get there. Gotcha. All right, last question that we ask on Certified Forgotten. Not the most relevant question for this movie. Typically we say, hey, this film is Certified Forgotten. And what is the future? How does this film find its, its future audiences? It's a fucking Scooby-Doo movie, man. It's going to be fine. I'm not super worried about it. But I do think outside of some of the audiences that you talked about in particular, Joe, I do think that there's going to be people that always sort of hold back on ever canonizing something that's animated or canonizing something that's for kids, whether it's scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, I'm a big fan of House of the Clock in Its Walls. I think that's great gateway horror. There's always people that are like, yeah, it's gateway horror, but it's not like horror horror, right? So I guess my question would be not how does this movie get rediscovered, but how do we allow films like Scooby-Doo to become part of the horror canon proper? I think we have to talk about the stigma of animation. There's, there's you know, a, a huge sector, movie watchers, who consider anything animation oh, to be for kids, and and it's going to be childish, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna enjoy it. Animation is just another uh, form of storytelling. Animation is a is a filmmaking tool. It there's a the, the same the same way there's animation for children, there is adult animation. You can even watch adult animated porn if you wanted to. I, I think we need to really just kick this whole idea that you know animation is only for kids. We need to just kick that to the curb. Um and, and we need this is an all hands on deck kind of thing. We need everyone to just kind of just like harp on this because you even have like fucking announcers in the Oscars, 
you know, announcing the the animated category and they're just talking about it like, oh, like this is like my kid's favorite movie and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, no, like uh, the sooner we can, you know, lose that fucking stigma, I think we can start getting more people to be like, hey, like Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island is is a fucking rad horror film. You know, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. I, I hate that um, animation is still stuck in this box. It's bullshit. I mean, you have the CEO of Disney just this past week saying that when the kids go to bed, adults don't want to watch animated movies. So it's a, if the CEO of Disney is going to say that, then I think you're absolutely spot on, Joe. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, and then I've mentioned it previously, but to add to the stigma of animation and also like the stigma of it's Scooby-Doo. So I think I know what I'm getting. It's just for kids, stuff of that nature. You know, adult viewers are reluctant to walk into those movies alone without children because, oh, is it weird? Or, oh, is it, you know, is it, can I, am I allowed to watch this? Um, but you have the, the people who are like Scooby-Doo fans and the super fans and everyone who is just banging the drum for like movies like this and specifically zombie Island, because, you know, Harmony Colangelo on Fangoria wrote a piece that why it's the best, you know, of, of the animated uh, Scooby-Doo films of like the late nineties and early two thousands. And you have, you know, Trace Thurman is one of the only Rotten Tomato reviews on <laughs> the Scooby-Doo zombie Island page. And like, it's a five out of five saying, basically saying like, it's not for children. Like literally, his blurb is like retains the Scooby Doo IP's goofy charms while simultaneously working as a surprisingly dark bit of gateway horror for children. Also, it's perfect. Like, like you have the people that have given in; they've gotten rid of the stigmas, and especially direct to video too. So, like, throw that on top of everything. This isn't a animated film that's going to theaters. This is something that is just going direct to video. Basically, everyone assumes it's made for kids. Like we we do. You have to get by all that, and I think we have gotten by that to a certain degree, but still, like you know, the mainstream viewer is still not going to think like that. I think we're at a good point where there are more and more people who are willing to invest into, you know, learning about cinema and things of that nature. But we are also dealing with a large amount who just don't want to see movies that way. So it's just banging the drum for it. uh, Because again, this is a highly lauded franchise. Like everyone knows Scooby-Doo. You put the cartoon anywhere on, you you just put a picture of Scooby-Doo. Everyone is going to know what you were talking about but it still only has eight reviews on rotten tomatoes and that is one of those things i think it's just it's going to be so hard to convince still large demographics that something like scooby-doo on zombie island could have parallels to the screen franchise could be doing things that we talk about in contemporary horror and or like you know horror of the year and you know how it's evolving it's just we have to stop thinking that like there are movies for children and movies for adults. I I know that does exist. And, you know, there are plenty of kids movies that don't work for adults, but they should, there shouldn't be a stigma to at least trying, you know, like there shouldn't be that thing preventing people from saying, well, I'm going to watch Wally, even though it's just a kid's movie. Like, all right. Like, I don't know, dude. (laughs) Shout out to all the, all the others spreading the good word. I'm Scooby Doo on Zombie Island out there. Um, I love that. I, I think with uh, with all our help, we can we can you know get this this film to its rightful place. Yeah. And you know, in in the iconography of of the horror genre. Boom, that is 
a final word on a film, maybe the most final word on a film that we've had on the show in a long time. And I love it. So you heard it straight from Joe's mouth to your ears. Go out and rent. Uh, what was the service that you used? What's Boomerang. It, it's it's Boomerang. literally on Boomerang right now. That's amazing. Go go rent it on Boomerang. Go buy, I mean, a VHS copy off of eBay. It's probably only a couple of bucks. I don't know. Do whatever. Go support a video store next to you and check it out there. It's in places. You can watch it. Go watch it. Joe, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been really fun talking movies with you, talking Scooby-Doo and animation with you as well. I know you've got a million things going on right now. So uh, do you want to pick one or two and uh, and promote some some upcoming opportunities? I hear you guys have a uh, partner screening you're doing at Nighthawk, maybe that you want to promote too, other stuff like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, for, first I'll say that I, I, I loved this. This was so great. A long, long time coming, um, and I enjoyed myself greatly. Uh, please just give my film festivals a chance. Come come, come visit us at Brooklyn Horror. Come visit us at North Bend Film Festival. Uh, we're we're going to be having year-round stuff um, for, for both entities, I'm sure, um, going forward. Uh, yeah, we have a, a little like a partner partner screening coming up um, with uh, uh, Utopia. We're gonna we're, we're showing a Holy Spider, um, big big time movie there. Um, so we have a little we had a little um, little contest going on our Twitter. But uh, yeah, follow us on our socials. You can find me um, at uh, Facebook by my name and Instagram and and Twitter at Official Joe Show. Nice. Donato, what are you working on? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, You can find me at Donato Bomb on Letterboxd, Instagram, and Twitter until it fucking implodes. Um, And then you can also follow me on Authory now that, like, I I just need to start putting my Authory out there more to say, like, it's where all my writing is in a super neat, easy place. And if you sign up to my little once a week email, you will get an email that says, hey, here's everything Matt wrote this week. So, It's really lovely. You will see such things as my coverage of festivals like Brooklyn Horror. Um, You will also see mainstream reviews. You will also see anything under the sun. So follow me on those places. Find me. Annoy me. I don't know. Tell me my opinions suck or don't. I don't know. Just read. (laughs) And if we ever figure out what the next great social media platform is, we'll retroactively go in here and edit all of our guests' bumpers and all of our bumpers in order to to update those and make them relevant. You can find us on Mastodon at that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, as for myself, hey, you can follow me at, at Matt Monagle. I got cool shit going on. I write about board games and horror films. It's what I do. It's like my niche. It's fun. But I do want to say thank you to everybody who read Certified Forgotten, particularly in October. This was our best month yet. I'm not surprised at all that it happened during spooky season. We got a lot of love from Reddit for the, de- the Terrifier piece that we published, which is an excellent piece. And you should go check it out. Real hug of death stuff. Our site stayed up. I'm super happy about that. Uh, But yeah, we love the support that we get. We love the fact that people are coming and reading our weird niche uh, articles that we're greenlighting. And, you know, we have some of the best writers in the business, a lot of great young emerging voices that are coming out through our site. And we're just going to be the first of many bylines along the way. So check it out at certifiedforgotten.com and support the crap out of our patron. We read at our tiers. We're like super cheap now. We're less than a cup of Starbucks. You can afford that, right? Yeah. Who knows? If you want to give, we're there for giving. Joe, great to have you on the show. 
I have a feeling this is not the last time that Certified Forgotten and Joe Hernandez will be, our names will be up together in lights. So I look forward to uh, to doing this again in the future and maybe having future opportunities to connect with you at film festivals. For sure, for sure. I, 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 I think this is only the beginning. Mm, I love it. You can't get rid of us. We're just going to show up at Brooklyn Horror every year if you don't let us do another live show. We're just going <laughs> to show up and do it. We'll just no, do it we need to do another one. We'll just go on the street and do like a live podcast recording uh, right on the street corner in front of the Nighthawk. <laughs> it, won't, it won't go over well. You'll have no, to call the cops on us. It'll be fine. Yeah. Donato, do you want to take us out in our normal fashion? Cheaper zoinks and all that shit. Love it. Goodbye, y'all. 